This is available as a podcast and a webinar. This conference will now be recorded. As I was saying, I think that the, the, the purpose of these brown bags is to have more informal conversations about uh, topics that have come up and, and, and things that uh, might be of concern or of interest uh, to talk about. Um, I know that a couple of you did send in uh, some topics to talk about, so we do have a small presentation prepared uh, for that, but then the idea is just kind of to open the floor to uh, just conversations about uh, things that, that, that we wanted to talk about. Um, so we did talk a little bit yesterday about the change in rules. <coughs> that uh, change of judge as a matter of right has come uh, back in to, uh, into play. Um, and so I just really quickly put together some information on the change of judge in each types of cases. Um, so you'll see that in the criminal rule, it's rule 10.2. Um, the rule indicates that a notice must be filed um, and that the person making the notice must avow that they're making it in good faith and not for improper purpose. Once you get the notice, you should proceed no further. No, no further action should be taken on the case. Uh, in criminal cases, temporary orders are allowed. These are the ones that I know that there was a question yesterday as to when they should be filed. In criminal cases, it can't be more than 10 days after arraignment or the notice of assignment of a judge. Um, unless there's a new judge assigned at the last minute or at some point for trial, then they have till 5 p.m. the following day to file the notice. Um, the parties can stipulate to a specific judge and then the case would be sent to that judge or it's sent to the presiding judge and the presiding judge reassigned. Um, we'll see in the, in the following slide, it talks about what are the proper purposes. Um, and one, one improper purpose is to not try to obtain a severance. Um, but if one of the parties does uh, notice the judge, the other defendants don't need to change judge, even if it will result in a severance. Um, and we lost the PowerPoint and that um, they, if something has already been resolved, there's been something contested in the case, then uh, they can no longer file the notice. And then there is the definition of what is improper purpose. I'm not gonna go through this, all of this. Uh, the only exception would be uh, if there is a plea that is withdrawn, then in that case, it can go to a different judge. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, so that's how it works in the criminal cases. Um, in the eviction cases, it's under Rule 9, which is the rule on motions, which is, I don't know, maybe a strange place to put it. But uh, there didn't used to be uh, changes of judges allowed in evictions, and they only started up in 2016. Uh, it was the, it, it was a new thing then, 
when this rule was amended and it, it was allowed. Uh, and then in 2020, they were suspended. Um, the, the eviction rules allows that the request can be made in writing or it can be made orally. Um, so that is an important distinction. Um, but they must state that the party has not previously requested a change of judge, nor waive that right and that the request is timely. So for it to be timely in an eviction, it has to be made before or at the time of the first appearance or upon reassignment to a new judge for trial. So um, yeah, if, if you are a pro tem and the, the attorneys come into the court and find out at that time that you are going to be hearing the trial that they had set previously with the sitting judge, that would be appropriate for them to file the notice at that time. Um, but if the judge has ruled on a contested motion or an issue, or if the trial has started, uh, then uh, the change of judge is waived. Uh, we did have an issue the other day over when do we consider that the trial has started. Um, I would probably suggest that just calling the case uh, does not mean the trial has started. Um, so uh, just be aware that, uh, but that that's what the rule says that if the trial starts, then the judge uh, cannot be changed. And then the court must transfer the case to another judge. And in Maricopa County Justice Courts, we have a matrix that we created back in 2016 when the change of judge uh, began uh, because of the, uh, the summary nature of evictions. We don't want to wait too long to get those transferred. So the managers in the courts, uh, they have a matrix that they follow. They know where to send the case. Uh, so you just need to notify the managers and they will send the case. Very possibly the case uh, can be taken care of that same day. Uh, immediately uh, when, when the transfer is made. And, and uh, the goal, is, the, the, go goal is to, the goal is to have it heard the same day so that we don't have people doing this uh, to gain a strategic advantage. And Judge Huberman, as, as you pointed out, this was just adopted in 2016 and it was adopted uh, presumably for the benefit of tenants because uh, it was tenant advocates who were pushing for this um, but who do you see are, are asking for the changes of judge in eviction matters? I mean, I, I, I would assume that in the, you know, 1% of cases where they do have attorneys, the attorneys might be requesting the change of judge, but it's true. And it's mostly, these are mostly filed by the landlords. Uh, I mean, there was a concern at the time when this happened in 2016, because we have a way to get these, uh, heard very quickly uh, and on the same day. The rural counties do not have that ability and there was a concern that this would be an issue in the rural counties, but it doesn't appear to have been um, because in those counties, the, the plaintiff, the landlords don't want to have to wait a week to get another judge or travel 200 miles to get another judge. So um, in, in the Civil actions, the regular civil cases and justice courts, uh, change of judge are covered under Rule 133D, 
again in this case they need to file a notice um, and it states that they've not previously requested a change of judge or waived it uh, it has to be filed 60 days before trial or 10 days uh, before the assignment of a new judge for trial and again it is waived if the judge has conducted a conference or has ruled on contested motions or issues or if the trial has started and again the court must transfer the lawsuit uh, those don't go through a matrix. Those are sent to the presiding judge and the presiding judge reassigns those. I thought I would just add here small claim rule number 12 in the new rules of small claims. Uh, the only change of judge that there is is in this rule 12 that says that the party may request that a justice of the peace hear the case rather than the hearing officer. Uh, and that request must be in writing and at least 15 days before the hearing date. Uh, I did not include the civil traffic rules uh, because the only thing that the civil traffic rules say specifically is that there's no change of judge in civil traffic. Uh, civil traffic, boating, parking, marijuana, that, that whole long name that they have. Um, and then we talked about this yesterday already, that all the changes of judge were suspended um, and that the, this administrative order by the Supreme Court reinstated them only in cases filed after April 1st of this year. So are there any questions about changes of judge? All right, so the next topic that we had questions on was counterclaims in eviction actions. Um, I'm gonna start talking first about uh, diminution of fair rental value. Um, the statute, you know, 33, 1367 and 1364 talk about um, damages that can be recovered. Uh, for uh, in, in one case for willfully diminishing the value, like interrupting utility service, and then the tenant can recover up to two months of rent or twice the actual damages. If a landlord fails to supply essential service, then the tenant can also recover damage based on the new diminution of fair rental value. Uh, but in all of these cases, or in this case, the tenant must give the landlord an opportunity to cure. Um, and if it's a minor defect, it's 10 days. If it's an essential services, it's five days. So a lot of times the problems that we have with these cases that come, you know, I, I've been paying for a, a, a house with two bathrooms, but one of the bathrooms hasn't worked for the last six months. Um, is that the, the statute does require the tenant give the landlord notice. Um, and we all know that that is always an issue because they just think that when they called them or told them or sent them the text message, uh, that might have been sufficient notice. Um, so just to have an idea of what, what the claims can be, this is one of them, the diminution of fair rental value. And then we have abuse of access. Abuse of access is not um, 
so the landlord is allowed to come into the property if they have a proper reason uh, and give two days notice that they're going to do so. Um, obviously, they can't abuse this access. They can't be, you know, wanting to come in every day. They want to come in to inspect every other day or things like that. Um, so those things might be considered abuse of access as well as coming in without entering, without giving notice that they were going to come. Um, and so in that case, the tenant can also recover actual damages, but that would be not less than one month of rent for the abuse of access. So technically they could get one month of rent for every time the landlord came in without giving notice. Uh, this statute does not require that the tenant um, give the, the landlord any type of notice um, and is many times brought up um, during the eviction cases. And then the counterclaims themselves, you'll find them in ARS 33-1365. That's the next slide. Um, so it can only be in cases based on non-payment of rent um, where the tenant is in possession of the property. Um, it, uh, and it can only be based on non-compliance with the rental agreement or with the Arizona Residential Landlord Tenant Act. Um, the, the counterclaim can only be for an amount that they could recover under, under the plea or under the statute, and it does not include tort. The, if we continue to the next slide, um, th this, this statute <laughs> also indicates that the judge may direct the, pen, the tenant to pay the undisputed amount of rent into the court as a bond prior to the trial. Um, so if the tenant's claiming that they, uh, that the counterclaim or that, that they withheld some of the rent, you know, I gave them $1,000, but I didn't pay them the $500 uh, that I didn't have to pay because, you know, X, Y, and Z, then the judge can order that the tenant deposit those $1,000 as a bond, um, which is the undisputed amount, and then uh, continue with the trial. If the tenant is not in possession of the property, then they do not have to pay any rent into the court. Um, and so just to recap, the last slide, um, the counterclaim, um, must arise out of the lease or the statute. It is only in residential non-payment cases. There are no counterclaims under the Mobile Home Park Act. It may not include tort. It should not be allowed as, to be used as a way to defeat jurisdiction unless it's supported by law and facts. So if they can't just come and counterclaim for $10,000 and ask them that uh, the case be removed to Superior Court. Um, if they, this is specifically in the rule, if it is defective or impermissible, the court may permit the defendant to restate it properly or order it dismissed without prejudice. Um, this is, you know, one of the examples of dealing with self-represented litigants that, uh, the, you know, they, they didn't do it in the right format or they, they wanted to present it orally or whatever it is, you know, give them an opportunity to fix it. Don't just dismiss it outright without 
allowing it specifically because it's in the rules saying that you should do that. And the counterclaim must be in writing. Uh, so if they do want to counterclaim, uh, just send them to the front counter to get the form. Uh, you can uh, recall the case when they come back after they file the counterclaim. And that is just a quick overview of uh, counterclaims and in, in evictions. Is there any questions on that? I have a question um, regarding the counterclaim. This is Liz. Um, so what you're saying is if, say I call the case, it's a non-payment, I go through you know, the declaration, everything, and then tenant says, yeah, I do owe the rent, but landlord hasn't done X, Y, and Z. I've provided notice, but it's not in writing. So should I then say, okay, tenant, go, I'm going to have you go and put a counterclaim together and file it, and then I'll recall your case? Is that how you should handle it? I mean, I think the, the, the problem with your scenario is, is I would say, First of all, it, it's not necessarily a counterclaim. It sounds more that it's a defense to the non-payment of rent because they had a reason to withhold the amount. Right. Uh, so that that is not necessarily a counterclaim. Um, the if 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 they if they present it as a counterclaim, uh, then probably yes. Uh, you would send them to, to the counter to fix it. Uh, usually those types of scenarios aren't the counterclaim. Most of the time the counterclaims we see, frankly, are people who want to, you know, file for mostly tort, right? The, there was mold and my kid got sick and I had to miss work and I need to be compensated for those kind of things. Um, and in those cases, you would just inform them that those can't be heard in this action but that they have a right to file in a separate venue and they can do that as a small claims or as a regular civil. Okay. Did that answer the question? I think so. I just, I had a, a case yesterday where it was kind of along the lines of what we're talking about. Um, the tenant was withholding rent because she said she gave notice and then, um, you know, landlord, she didn't wait for the 10 day period. A day after she gave notice, she went ahead and she made the whatever she fixed. She didn't use a licensed contractor. Um, and so on the record, she said, yeah, I do owe the rent, but it should be reduced by amount X because I did X, Y, and Z. Um, so it was, it was a situation like that, but she didn't ask to file a counterclaim. She wanted me to reduce the amount that was owed. Uh, I mean, in that case, it could be maybe considered a counterclaim because she did not have a right to have the rent reduced by that amount. Uh, but then again, I think the issue that you have, um, I mean, that might be a counterclaim if it was something that was within the you know, the lease or the obligations of a landlord. I mean, it sounds like the problem she really had was that she didn't wait the, 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 the time, did not right. give the landlord an opportunity to correct it. So that is one of the requirements. Okay. And in situations like that, do you just 
I, I mean, I entered order the order. Do you set that for trial? So you 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 always have to set for trial anything where there's a factual dispute. Okay. Um, so I don't know what the facts of that case were, if there was a, an actual factual dispute or not. Uh, I mean, if she admitted that she didn't give him the 10 days to wait, or if she admitted, you know, some of those other issues, uh, then maybe it, it you're just resolving it as, an, as a matter of law and not uh, based on any trial. Okay, thank you. Uh, but if um, but if there's if there's any type of indication that there is a factual issue to resolve, then yes, you must set for trial. You know, we we we, we talk about this over and over, and 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 I, I you know, and I'm sorry if we become repetitive on this, but we see this all the time from the Commission on Judicial Conduct or from the Court of, of Appeals judge. Um, that judges tend to confuse the vowels made by attorneys as evidence. Uh, so just be sure that you're picking out what is an actual factual uh, admission as opposed to something that's just being told to you by the landlord attorney. Understood. All right, any other questions on evictions or changes of judge that uh, Judge Huberman just talked about? So uh, just keep in mind as the pro tem, um, there, there is a lower court appeal that does say that the regular sitting judge is presumed to be the judge if there is no other indication of who the judge is. Um, but the pro tem is not unless the pro tem is identified. So uh, you, you know, particularly for a jury trial, we, we do encourage the courts to indicate who the pro tem is going to be at least 10 days before the jury trial, so we don't run into a surprise change of judge uh, on the day of the jury trial and, and then run into trying to find a replacement judge very quickly. Uh, so you, you may need to look at when you were identified as the presiding judge, as the judge who's going to be conducting the proceedings to determine if that change of judge is timely. All right. Charles, yes. I was just I was just going to say if we've covered the other issues and there are no questions at the moment that now might be a good time to mention the rule 8 issue that Judge Wismer had brought up as well as the re release conditions um, on the orders. Okay. Uh, and, and Judge Wismer did point out that he has noticed that in criminal cases, when you are granting a continuance, uh, you should be checking whether or not time is excluded. That, that is important for Rule 8 purposes. Uh, and in, in one of the previous slides, when we went through when the notice of change of judge was not available, it's basically that same time period, time was excluded in criminal cases. It's not excluded anymore, it, it's now countable. Uh, so you do have to make that determination. And basically a rule of thumb is if a defendant is asking for the continuance, then you should be excluding time. If the defendant is not asking for con the continuance that the state is, then time should be included. It should not be excluded. And those are general rules of thumbs. 
Um, there may be differences based upon the situation. Uh, and usually when the defendant is asking for a continuance, they, they go ahead and uh, stipulate that time can be excluded. Uh, if the state uh, it indicates there's no opposition to the continuance, it's because uh, they'll, indi they'll indicate um, no objection as long as time is excluded or waived. So you do need to make sure that you're checking uh, one of those boxes and, and that you're checking it appropriately. And what was the other issue, Tosh? Uh, can I just add something on to that? Yes. Uh, you know, and, and I know that, you know, you're the pro tems and we're the sitting judges and, and, and a lot of this responsibility falls on us and not on you. Uh, but we do have uh, time standards that the Supreme Court expects us to comply with. And, um, the the you know a lot of that went out the window during the pandemic because everything as we know life went out the window during the pandemic but um we're, we're trying to all get kind of back on track and trying to keep our cases you know a little more under control and the fact that uh time is excluded or not excluded actually uh really um is supposed to not have any impact on our time standards. We're supposed to get a case done, a DUI within 180 days, 90% of them or something within 180 days, uh, regardless of time being excluded or not. And so sometimes the use of exclusion of time um, is a way that we can keep cases moving forward. Uh, if we exclude time every single time, then there's no incentive for the state to actually get their cases uh, complied with in a timely manner. And I'm, you know, and I understand the limitations that a pro tem has in making these determinations. These are determinations that the sitting judge has, uh, but, you know, just be aware that these are things that the judge might be uh, considering and looking into when you just blindly uh, waive time every single time. And, and to that, uh, the other issue was release conditions, Charles, but to the issue of Rule 8, um, one of the things that I've noticed when I have pro temed is that uh, frequently the state will ask for a continuance and indicate that the usually because they want to get more discovery, some, some other um, something that they're waiting for from the uh, law enforcement agencies, and they will indicate that the defendant has no objection to time waived. However, usually the defendant is pro per and has no attorney and does not really know what time waived means or what they're doing. In those instances, I usually ask the um, defendant to be brought in if they're not in the courtroom. And I ask them specifically if they understand what their uh, speedy trial rights are and if they are actually wanting to waive that time because it is a request made by the state that is for the state's benefit, not necessarily for the defendant's benefit. Sometimes it might be for the defendant's benefit, depending on what they're waiting for. Um, but in any event, if I don't find that the defendant knowingly and intelligently has made that waiver, then I don't exclude the time um, because frequently in asking questions, the defendants have no idea. They've just agreed to whatever the prosecutor has asked them to do. Um, 
The other issue that was uh, a matter for discussion were release conditions. The Judge Wismer indicated that people were not specifying the, the specific release conditions, whether they were released OR or on bond on the release orders, and he would like pro tems to do that. Yeah, so make sure that you are completing the release conditions. Uh, most importantly, whether you're releasing them OR or holding them on bond. Uh, if somebody walks into a court voluntarily, we don't normally impose a bond on them because uh, then you have the awkward situation of if they can't post the bond, then do you want um, security to drag them out and uh, good luck getting security to drag them out. So, uh, you know, for rule of thumb, if, if they've walked into court of their own volition uh, without, a pre without having posted a previous bond, then you should almost certainly be releasing them OR. If they've already posted a bond, you can hold them on that bond. So you would check, uh, uh, you would check secured bond, 500 bucks if they've already paid it. So that this way, that still ensures that they continue to show up at their court case, uh, at their court dates. Uh, if you don't want to hold them on bond, uh, you can you can release the bond to the bond holder. You do need to check who the bond, uh, who has posted the bond. Uh, if it's a post-adjudication case, you can apply the bond to the fine if the bond poster has agreed that it can be a paid, uh, that it can be applied to the fine. Uh, for the other conditions of release, if you've got a DUI, normally you do want to check that you don't drive without a valid driver's license and that you don't drink and drive. If you've got a domestic violence case, you want to look carefully that they not have any contact with the victim. Uh, and they not return to the residence uh, with, uh, and give them a law enforcement standby. Uh, so you should be looking carefully at the conditions of release uh, so that the, they are appropriate and they do match the case. Uh, and I do know that a, another issue that Judge Wismer raised was concern uh, about handling. Uh, I just want to say to that that the, the release condition form is usually the one that you fill out at arraignment. And then in the subsequent hearings, we usually get the form with a motion that has the space at the top, you know, for the motion and then a space for the other party uh, to agree or not agree with the motion. And then the space at the bottom where the judge signs granting or not granting or denying the motion. And there is a box, we specifically added a box onto that form that says affirming release conditions. Um, so that is a box that also should be marked. Um, so you don't have to fill out the, the release form every single time, um, as long as you mark that box that the release conditions are affirmed. Sorry. Uh, and so a third issue that Judge Wismer raised, because uh, he does get a lot of juvenile matters, is that some pro tems don't recognize that there are different rules and procedures for juveniles. Uh, so we're, we're going to go ahead and do a, a separate standalone juvenile hearing officer uh, procedure that has been part of the training for the new pro tems for the last three years. Uh, but prior to the last three years, if, if you're an older pro tem, you may not have had that um, provision, you may not have had that training. So we're, we're, we'll go ahead and do a separate session for that. All right, Taj, did we cover those concerns? Yes, that was everything that he had brought to our attention. All right, there was another 
item brought to our attention, and this this was more specifically aimed at small claims, but um, I know there there has been a a, a uh, discipline of one of our prior pro tems, one of our former pro tems that involved one of these yeah. issues. And so we do just want to make sure that everyone is aware uh, that pain and suffering can be awarded in justice court and in small claims, and punitive damages can be awarded in justice court and in small claims. And again, we're, we're going to do a separate class on this. If you have any questions about that, uh, and, and I see someone who, who watched our hearing officer, Brown Bag Lunch, asked a couple of good questions about that. Um, the, the differentiation is in small claims, we, we don't do defamation, libel, or slander, uh, but you can do pain and suffering and you can do punitive damages. Uh, you probably shouldn't be doing punitive damages very often and, and keep in mind our jurisdictional limits. So, and th this is the discipline that I was talking about is we did have a pro tem who didn't know that she had jurisdiction to consider a punitive damages claim. And so the co commission did point out to her uh, that she did. Uh, as you can see, that was 11 years ago. So that was before me. Uh, and then there, uh, I, I have a snippet from the small claims class from January, 2021 that specifically goes into a scenario where you might want to consider punitive damages in a small claims scenario. Again, I, I, would, I would be really careful about that and, and I'd want to make sure that it was pled in the complaint, um, certainly not to do it at a default hearing if the defendant is not present. So any questions about uh, uh, punitive damages or pain and suffering? And you know, we may have some civil lawyers here who know that uh, for pain and suffering, one of what we usually use for a benchmark is three times the actual medicals. You know, and and that that's just a starting figure, or it, it, that's not set in stone. When we do the standalone class, I'll give you some of the jury instructions that you can consider. Another question that we got was, uh, can somebody get lost wages and Presumably, yes, they can get lost wages as well if, as long as that was a result, uh, a foreseeable result of the conduct of the defendant. Um, we don't do pain and suffering for contract cases. Uh, 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 there is one type of quasi-contract slash tort case where you may do it, but again, we'll, we'll go into that in more detail. All right, any other questions about damages? All right, the next uh, round of questions were about criminal trials. Uh, so uh, the pro tem wanted to know, is she allowed to ask questions of a defendant? Uh, and you are absolutely allowed to ask questions of a defendant. Uh, in fact, um, evidence rule 614 allows you to call witnesses. You, you can actually put someone on the witness stand. Now, I would be really, really careful about doing that. Um, I've never asked a question in a jury trial. Uh, for a jury trial, I'm, I'm going to let the attorneys do it because you do have, you're almost certainly going to have an attorney representing the defendant. Uh, but uh, I, in, a, in, in a criminal trial, I'm going to be careful too. Um, and if you're going to be asking questions of the defendant, uh, make sure that you don't want to have that defendant potentially waiving 
a Fifth Amendment right. Uh, so go ahead and review um, Rule of Evidence 614 if, if you still have any questions. Uh, and can a defendant testify in his or her case in chief? They can. Uh, and they're going to be subject to cross-examination. So you, you may want to um, warn a defendant before they agree to testify that if they are do, that if they do so, uh, that they may be waiving their um, Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Uh, the next question is, how does the defendant introduce exhibits if the defendant does not have witnesses or is the only witness? Well, um, presumably the state has witnesses. So the only options are to have the state uh, have see if the state witnesses can do it, um, provide the foundation for it. Uh, the only other option is if the parties will stipulate that an exhibit is admissible. Otherwise, there is going to have to be a live witness who does provide foundation. And um, and if and if the defendant can't get the prosecutor to stipulate or cannot get a state witness to provide that foundation, um, the defendant may have no option but to testify if the defendant really wants that exhibit uh, introduced. And then, and these are great questions. And the last question is, how detailed does my ruling need to be in a criminal case? And uh, the answer is, you don't need to provide um, any explanation whatsoever. Uh, you don't. Uh, and in fact, the um, standard on appeal is a, a an appellate judge will uphold your ruling if there is any basis to support it in the record. Um, so even so, if you don't give a basis, it can be upheld on appeal. If you give the wrong basis, it can still be upheld on appeal as long as the appellate judge does find a basis um, for it in the record. And, and I know Judge Huberman here is wants to jump in to say, well, hold on a second, we got a whole lot of self-represented litigants, and that's where the second part of this answer does uh, comes in, and that is you, you should give an explanation, uh, particularly for uh, self-represented defendants, as to why you're making that ruling. You do want to let them know that they were heard, unless they didn't testify, in which case they weren't heard. Um, but you, you do want to um, provide a basis uh, to explain to self-represented litigants why you're making the decision that you are. Uh, and, and, and those of you who've heard me talk about this before will have probably heard me say, uh, if somebody starts to complain that, that um, I got something wrong, I'll actually listen to them because believe it or not, there have been times I've been wrong and uh, someone has pointed that out uh, and I'll then reconsider my ruling. Uh, that doesn't mean you can you have to let them argue with you for a half hour because uh, at some point you can't say I've made my decision, you're free to appeal the decision. Um, but you know, for self-represented litigants, it, it is good to explain uh, why you did the ruling that you did in, in civil cases. Um, you know, it, it's a good idea. The other you know, thing about it is, is, is explaining your ruling. It, you know, if you take something under advisement, you're going to have to do, take, if you take something in adv under advisement and send them away, then you're going to need to do something in writing. You, you can always take something or in, under advisement and 
and tell them to wait for 10 minutes and, and then come back and do it on the record. Um, but if, if you send them away, you're, you are going to have to put it in writing. Uh, and if you're just doing a civil case and, and you're just going to fill out the judgment form, then you're not explaining. Uh, and that's where, we're, where we get more complaints, where you're going to get complaints to the commission, where you're going to get potential appeals, is if you just have a ruling without any explanation. So Judge Huberman, did you want to add anything to that? I just wanted to add that the, you know the, the staff also uh, the, the clerks are always um, happier or or it makes their job easier if you put a, even a smaller explanation um, in, in any type of ruling that you make. If you're not allowing alternative service, you know just a few lines as to why you didn't allow it, so that when the person calls, the clerks can say they didn't do it because of this and this. And not just, well, I don't know why the judge just said no. So uh, I agree that, um, that you know, you don't have to go into pages and pages of ruling, but sometimes just a little explanation as to why uh, you made the decision. Uh, you know, the rules don't allow for you to change judge at this stage of the proceeding or whatever it is, you know, just a small explanation. All right, anyone else? Uh, Tosh, did you want to chime in on that or? No, no, nothing to add, thank you. All right, any other questions or comments about anything we've talked about thus far? All right, so we'll do an open round table and uh, discussion and any other questions. I, I do, do want to go through one other thing with you. I did include bench cards that I have created in your materials. And I uh, sent this out last year as well, um, but I'll go through it again because uh, um, it, 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 they, they've been updated. Uh, but the first page is for criminal matters, and this does discuss whether uh, what the right of appeal is, what the burden of proof is, and whether the rules of evidence apply or what the alternatives are. Um, so you'll see in an evidentiary motion to suppress, the rules of evidence don't apply, um, and there's the rule that does apply. Um, it, it gives you the standard what you're looking for on a warrant uh, for juvenile cases, which of course aren't criminal, but I put them in here because that was the best place to put them. Um, and uh, if you ever find yourself doing a preliminary hearing, there is the standard for that as well. And then the second page is for criminal matters post-conviction. Uh, there's very, there's nothing in the rules of procedure about doing uh, restitution hearings. Uh, Mr. Kielski, your mic is on. Did you have a question? Yeah, I just uh, wanted to jump in on the alternative service um, because that, that raised a, a thing that came up. Uh, recently, uh, I had a default hearing on a civil matter, um, and it was a default hearing after service by publication. Um, and during that hearing, it came out that the the, uh, the plaintiff had the had an email address for the defendant, and the defendant had at one point even re responded, but 
they didn't they chose to proceed on a service by publication and um you know in that case i, I just told them look you know what have have your process server or your staff mail everything by by email to the defendant and file another you know uh, certificate of service just so we know in the record that you've made every effort and then some because in this day and age i think service by publication in a small paper in some tiny community is 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 not you know it may be deemed um service um you know uh constructive notice but it's really an exceptionally poor way to attempt to provide some someone actual notice when you have an email address or a social media account. Uh, I don't know if anybody else has any comments on that, or if you or Judge Huberman want to want to say anything about that. But that that really just struck me that they had an email address, they have corresponded with them, and then they were trying to get a default based on service by publication. Yeah, and thank you for uh, mentioning that. A couple years ago, there was a court of appeals case that um, that did address service by publication, and it, and it gave a specific example of, of even reaching out on Facebook. Um, so yeah, if a plaintiff has an email address, I, I think they do need to demonstrate that they made every attempt to contact the defendant using that email address before they can resort to uh, service by publication. Uh, and, and that's why we do the hearings. We do the hearings uh, for service by publication after the service by publication. Uh, and so if you then determine, you know what, you had that email address, so you should not have served by publication, oh, you know, too bad. You, you, you ran the risk of it not being accepted. Uh, so back to the bench card. Um, so you'll see the, the standards for marijuana expungement, for contempt, for um, post-conviction relief. And for animal return, that, that was a uh, hearing that was added last year. There's no guidance on that whatsoever in the statute, but there's the statute. And uh, so this will be updated before the end of the year to address um, motions to seal criminal matters, which will be quite fascinating. And for those of you who were in attendance yesterday with that mandatory training, and the next page is for civil matters. And so uh, again, you'll see the different standards, whether there's a right to an appeal um, and whether the rules of evidence do apply or what the alternative is and what the burden of proof is. And the last page is the order of protection page, the protective order page. And this does have the, the most changes You'll see up in yellow at the top um, that for protective orders served uh, on or after September 24, they're valid for two years. Um, so, you know, just uh, as we talked about yesterday, you need, you need to have that date etched in your mind because uh, you need to, to give people proper guidance as to whether that um, protective order of protection is going to be valid for one year or two. And then as of September 24, that alternate defini definition that was in play last year is now gone. Uh, so uh, this page was uh, amended to include that. Also at the bottom, um, new allegations at a contested hearing. Uh, Rule 38D does, um, you, you must allow the plaintiff to amend on a form provided by the court. And then the, the three options that you have for the defendants. Uh, so I did just wanna go through that bench card. I hope you'll find it useful. 
All right, we do have about 10 more minutes. Do we have any other questions or comments or concerns? Or does any or does anyone have any questions about the reapplication process or um, anything associated or related to that? I'd be happy to answer those questions as well. Charles, I have a question. Liz, uh, well, Liz, Liz had her microphone on first. Sorry, I just wanted um, to go back to the service question. Has there been um, any movement or have you heard anything about allowing alternative service like via social media? Has there been anything like in, in our jurisdiction? Because I've seen cases like out of New York and judges are, are contemplating that, but do we have anything here? Well, that, no. Uh, other than the case that I mentioned that came out a couple of years ago that said if that said if the plaintiff did have um, potential means of reaching them, um, it, it did need to explore those means before turning to uh, social media uh, before turning to service by publication. Uh, there's nothing in the rules now that say that they're required to do that. Uh, if we got an application for alternative service uh, and it said that um, they, they can reach them by direct messaging on Facebook, uh, I, I suppose, yeah, you could consider allowing that. I haven't seen an application like that. Have you, Judge Huberman? I saw one uh, recently that had, you know, when they do those skip traces, they they come up with uh, possible email addresses. Um, and they had a list of like seven or eight email addresses that were possible for this person. And then they ask that the alternative service be to those email addresses. I didn't allow it because I, I mean, I had no way to verify that those email addresses, you know, belong to that one person. I mean, do we know that there's no other Anna Hubermans in all of the world that, you know, that Anna Huberman at, at you know, whatever is, is me and not someone else? No, I, it, it was an interesting request, but I, in the end, didn't allow it. I mean, yes, I know so, that, so. that in Superior Court, you know, for divorces and things, um, that is one of the things that they can show when they request for the default, is we try to locate them on, you know, on, on, on Facebook and, and, and social media and couldn't find them. But here, it's, it's usually part of the process of skip tracing is looking for them on in the on social media. So. So so keep in mind that the only alternative to personal service that is allowed in the rules is um, service by publication, and that has to be approved after the fact. Uh, any other type of alternative service has to be pre-approved by the judge. Uh, if you're going to do that, then um, before you default somebody who, who did get pre-approval to serve on social media, that you then require proof that the actual intended person did receive notice of that, um, so that so that you do have actual due process. Um, but but you know if the question was aimed at has 
is the Supreme Court moving to amend the rules to do anything about service by social media? No, they, they haven't done anything in, in that direction. All right, Scott? Or Liz, did you have anything further? Yeah. Yeah, I, I have a question. I have seen leases uh, that on the front page, it says that all notices, uh, et cetera, can be sent to the tenant by email. And then when they fail to pay their rent, they email them the five-day notice and it winds up in front of us. But there is a statute that makes any provision uh, in a lease that agrees to waive or forego a right unenforceable. My question is, do we consider uh, the five-day notice being hand-served or sent certified mail to be a right that cannot be waived? We we talked about this at the last eviction uh, class that we had. I, I have as well seen those notices. Um, I was of the opinion, as you are, that, that those are statutory rights and cannot be waived, um, although there was some others who did not necessarily believe that. So um, I, I, for me, regardless if it's a right, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I go by 331313 13 that says it has to be in hand or certified, um, or they have to have actual notice. And so what I have heard from the company that does do the, email notices is that they do it through a portal and that they get a notification when the tenant received it. Um, so in the end, I guess that would be a factual issue to determine, Did you know, who opened it, did they really get it? Um, I, I, I find that in the cases that I have that are defaults now, they just mark the box that says in person because I haven't been allowing the electronic. And honestly, I don't know if they actually tried to give it to them in person, but once they mark the box and it's a default, I'm kind of stuck with it. But um, I, I agree with you that it should not be a, a right that they can be allowed to waive. Thank you. All right, any other questions or comments? Any questions about the reapplication process? And, and I know uh, some of us were concerned that uh, you're required to do two years, uh, two hours, two years, two hours of eviction classes. And and one of us only uh, ended the class after 1.75 hours. Uh, so you did get your 0.25 today, Judge Malka. Uh, so don't don't sweat it any longer. All right, any other questions, comments, concerns? Yeah, look, uh, I have a question about the reapplication process. Um, when when are we um, going to be notified if we're going to be reappointed? And if we're not reappointed, do you guys tell us the reason why we're not being reappointed? So that process is exactly how it was spelled out in the, the email with your application. The applicants, even the reappointees, go through the same appointment process as the new candidates. Your name has to go first through the committee, then the bench. The difference is if you're not a new appointee as opposed to a, a, 
a reappointment. You don't have to do an interview again, but it still has to go through the same process. You go through the committee, you go to the bench, you go to the board of supervisors, and then you go to uh, presiding judge Welty for his appointment order. All of that takes four months and those orders don't get signed until usually December and then they are effective January 1st. If there are any issues at any stage of the process and it looks like you are not being passed on, you'll be notified once that stage of the process has begun. At this point, we haven't begun committee meetings or bench meetings or the Board of Supervisor vote or any of those things. But if at any point along the process there was an obstacle or an impediment, you'd be notified. Thank you. You're welcome. And just so you have a, a, a little bit more detail on the time frame, usually the uh, bench meets in, I'm sorry, the committee meets sometime usually in September, August, September to discuss the applications. The bench meets for a vote in either September or October. The names are then forwarded to the presider for um, review and the Board of Supervisors after that October date. Uh, Board of Supervisors usually makes a vote in November and then the presiding judge of the Superior Court signs appointment orders in December. So that's the uh, time frame you'd be looking at for each step. All right, anyone have anything further? All right, thank, thank you. Oh, Sonia. Actually, yeah, if um, if you could hear me, I had an issue that arose today. I think I dealt with it the right way, but not totally sure. So a gentleman comes in on a change of plea. He looks like he's passed out. I'm not a drug recognition expert, but I was concerned whether or not he was under the influence of any drugs. I did ask at the beginning of the change of plea, you know, are you, are you under the influence of any drugs, medication, or alcohol, which will affect your ability to, you know, engage this change of plea today? So that was kind of how I handle it, handled it. He did um, respond and say no and kind of like woke up. And again, I'm not a drug recognition expert. I was just concerned. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on best practices for when you see someone about to change their plea, but you think they may be under the influence of intoxicating substances, if you will. Um, I mean, I went through with it. He seemed generally fine, but I, I was concerned at first. So just wanted to get your thoughts and, on, on best practices on how to handle um, that, you know, where, again, we're not experts or anything but you know so that that's my question um appreciate it i mean i think that you handled it well by asking him you know i think that 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 is really the only thing you can do if you're still concerned despite his response um you know you could always say that that, that we can't hear this today i'm going to continue this to a different day you know, I, I would suggest that you not take a plea if you're concerned that he's not making it, uh, you know, with his full faculties. I had a witness once that appeared to be completely high, and it was it was just crazy. And I finally, I was like, I can't allow you to testify. Um, and and we had to reset the case. I just, I, I it was just impossible. Um, the the person was just all over the place. So, yeah. Possible the person was just having a really good day. It could be, you know, I did a, I did a, <laughs> when I was an interpreter, I once did a change of plea in Superior Court where, you know, they always ask, are you under the influence of drug or alcohol? And the guy said no. And I was standing next to him. 
first of all, I think he might have just been a, a, a you know, a, a lifelong alcoholic. His his eyes were yellow. Um, he was just, um, and he just exuded alcohol smell from his clothes and and everything. And I'm like, you know, it's not up to me to say anything. And he went through with the change of plea. Um, and I don't know. I I, I didn't say anything because it's, it's, it's the, the judge let it slide. I guess it was the the it was on him, but. I would say um, if you ask and, and they den deny that they're under the influence of anything and you're still not comfortable that you go ahead and say, or do not say, well, I think you're drunk or you look intoxicated to me. Just say, um, we are going to need to reschedule this. And then write in the notes that it appeared that the person was drunk or intoxicated so that when the defendant comes back the next time, if he still appears off, and that at that point you might want to appoint a public defender in the interest of justice because it might be um, an issue, a comprehension issue. It, you know, it might be something other than a substance issue. Um, so you know, note in the you know, don't say on the record while you're doing it, and note in the file so that if 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 it happens again, it it might be something where you need to appoint a public defender. Good, good question. Anything else? Okay. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you all for your service. Uh, if you have any other questions, let us know. Uh, and, and we'll be letting you know about some future classes. Like I said, we'll do one on damages and torts, and we'll do one for juveniles. Have a good day.